You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's be honest. You probably don't like bugs. I mean, think about it. You turn on the garage light and a cockroach scurries across the concrete. Your reaction? Ew. Or you turn off the light in a motel room and you hear that awful whine. And you can't sleep until you hunt it down. Come here. Where did it go? There. Darn. There you are. Dang it. And flies. Is there anyone who likes flies other than a few fish? You watch one alight on your potato salad, and you'll eat everything but that one chunk of potato. Hey, you want that last bite? Uh, no, it's all yours. Thanks. <laughs> so gross. What'd you say? Oh, nothing. Whether it's these critters, or spiders, ticks, bedbugs, even your neighborhood praying mantis, bugs bug us. They can be dangerous, even deadly. They're the number one bugaboo of agriculture. We spend a lot of time, money, and chemicals trying to rid ourselves of these winged and exoskeleton pests. But even if not a threat, at a primal level, bugs just give us the willies. But it may be time to make peace. I've just arrived at Tiny Farms, an insect farm here in Berkeley, California. I'm here to pick up my mealworm kit. Hi. Hi, I'm Andrew Brentano. Welcome to Tiny Farms. This is my kit? This is. This is your do-it-yourself mealworm kit. You've got probably 50 to 100 mealworms in there. I want to take good care of these mealworms. What are my instructions? Mainly leave them alone and give them a carrot. <laughs> a carrot. You mean incentive to do something? Uh, they eat and live in this dry substrate, which is wheat bran, but they get moisture from vegetables like carrots. Carrots last well and they're inexpensive. How do I know that I'm raising them correctly? As long as they're not dying, uh, which they turn black and you'll see them sitting on the top, then you're doing pretty well. I don't need to talk to them or take them out for walks? Nothing. Just leave them in a normal room. It can be dark. It can be light during the day. Just warm enough is the only thing that matters. Okay, I'm ready. See right. you in a few days. Sounds good. We'll see you then. You'll find out why there's a whole new definition to the term mealworm. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to take a big picture view of science. And in this episode, it might just bring out the pest of us. Bugs are not our best friends, but our attitude is about to change because there's more to a bug's life. <laughs> Bugs have given one musician, if not all of us, rhythm. And packed with protein, bugs may become an essential menu item. But first, we have to get over our fear of them. 
I have a terrible fear of spiders. Come on, we live in the country now. It's time to work through this irrational, paralyzing terror. It's not irrational. Bugs are the stars of numerous horror films. If they're not provoking an outbreak of arachnophobia, they're crawling through the sewers of Los Angeles. What is it? An ant. An ant? I don't believe it. It's not possible. Of course, in the movie Them, they are eight feet high at the shoulders. You can see why people are fearful of these ants. Well, that, that movie really scared the heck out of me because there was some scene in which some young girl gets her mobile home chomped into pieces by these giant ants. I couldn't sleep for nights. Well, just be happy it wasn't a documentary. <laughs> I we thought as- it was. <laughs> we associate insects with feelings of revulsion, if not fear, but there is an evolutionary reason for that. Professor of Natural Sciences Jeffrey Lockwood explores that and the psychology of disgust and fear in his book, The Infested Mind, Why Humans Fear loathe, and love insects. And he's had his own brush with the severe willies. In 1998, he was in Wyoming studying grasshoppers, and he came across more than he bargained for, right? Yes, exactly. I was out on the prairie and doing some field work, and I'd been told about this very dense infestation not far from where I was. And so I went to that area, and on the tops of the hills, there were maybe 20, 30 grasshoppers per square yard, which was pretty impressive. But there was a draw, deep draw, where there were still some green plants. So I decided to descend into that gully. And there I encountered probably 100, 150 grasshoppers per square yard. It was, it was biblical. <laughs> well, biblical, because what you see in the movies when insects swarm is, you know, it looks like hundreds of thousands of them. They darken the sky. I take it that wasn't quite the experience. Well, no, they weren't so much in the sky. They were in the vegetation, although once I descended into this gully, I was sort of... Um, you know, the, the walls of the draw were over my head. And so it was like being enclosed. And the grasshoppers at that density just form a, a boiling mass. Um, and they begin to take flight. They were sort of bouncing off my face, crawling into my hair, working their way under my shirt, clinging to my body. And I'd worked with grasshoppers for years, but their numbers and perhaps that closed space conspired to generate a full-blown panic attack, which I'd never had in the presence of insects before. I'd, I'd been comfortable with them up to then, and, and I just had an incredible encounter with an experience of fear. Well, what about their disgusting behavior? Because you've written about that, that if you pick up a grasshopper, and I think, you know, almost anyone has done that at some point in their lives, they have responses that are designed to put you off. Oh, very much so, yeah. So not only do they generate fear, which is sort of one of our basic universal emotions, but they tap into disgust, which is our other universal aversive emotion. And it's it's different than fear. And disgust uh, usually has to do with a sense of contamination or filth or even uh, the transmission of disease, bodily products. And, you know, when we were kids, we called it spitting tobacco. But, of course, what they're actually doing is just regurgitating their gut contents, so they're vomiting on you, and that's pretty disgusting. Some of them also begin to defecate pretty prolifically. And so with you got uh, things coming out of both ends, and given our experience, that's a pretty off-putting kind of behavior to encounter. You know, in a way, this is somewhat peculiar because I'm trying to imagine an analogous situation where you go somewhere and you're surrounded by, I don't know what, canaries or parrots or something like that, and they're they're landing on your shoulder, and you'd probably find that rather almost attractive in a way. And yet, with insects, we generally don't have that reaction. But this is not necessarily irrational, is it? I mean, insects are vectors for disease. Your point is well made. You know, insects, I think what they do in terms of triggering our aversive response 
is they tap into a sense of the alien in particular. You know, birds at least have two legs and feathers and, and warm blood. The insects uh, are very much different than us. They're sort of like an other, but they're an other that's capable of invading our bodies and our homes, of evading us, escaping our attempts to stop or to kill them. And you're right, they do cause harm. They, they can transmit disease and they can sting and bite. Now, of course, most insects are, are harmless, but what we remember are the negative encounters, not the neutral encounters for sure. So this sounds like something that evolution has produced in us, that we have maybe a hardwired fear of insects because they can do us harm? Well, that's one hypothesis. Yeah, the, the evolu there's a group of evolutionary psychologists who would contend that we are sort of hardwired to fear insects. I think there's some evidence that calls that into question. And the way I like to think of it is that our response to insects is sort of a conspiracy between evolution and culture. Evolutionarily, we are highly attuned to insects. For me, insects are to animals like red is to colors. It, it, they attract our attention. And evolutionarily, they probably do that because they represent both danger and through a lot of our evolutionary history, a lot of insects probably represented food or a snack. So in either case, there's something worth paying attention to. So I think we're evolutionarily predisposed. Some people call it prepared learning. We're ready to learn about insects as children. That's when culture steps in. Parents and other adults and various role models basically inform us what response we ought to have to the insects. And of course, in, in the modern age, where we're relatively inexperienced with the natural world, our response, especially in urban settings, tends to be negative. And so that's the cultural message that gets layered on to the child's evolutionarily prepared learning. When I watch Animal Planet, you know, I'm struck by the fact that most of the stories are about uh, predators. Maybe not surprising. They never seem to make, you know, series about ground squirrels or anything like that. It's always, you know, tigers, lions, crocodiles, snakes, things, things that you had a reason to be afraid of. And I've always assumed we have a hardwired response to these kind of predators to pay attention to their habits in, in the interests of our own self-preservation. But that's really more fear than disgust. What is the difference there? Ah, yes. Well, uh, both of them are aversive emotions. They are negative emotions. Fear generally motivates us to escape, right? And so it generates, uh, you know, this typical response we can feel in our bodies. Our heart rate goes up. Our breathing rate goes up. It is a response to imminent danger. Disgust, on the other hand, is an aversive response, and it has a different physiology in the sense that, you know, nobody feels panicked coming upon Oh, a pool of vomit or a pile of feces. Your heart rate actually, interestingly, goes down. So what we're trying to do, in a sense, in response to disgust, is to keep ourselves from being contaminated. And that involves a whole bunch of different physiological responses. So, um, you know, uh, think about how you feel, what your internal experience is, when a neighborhood dog suddenly starts barking at you versus you going into a dirty outhouse right? Both of those are pretty aversive, but your internal sensations and, in fact, your physiological responses are really very different in those two cases. Neither is pleasant, but it doesn't feel the same, and, in fact, there's very different things going on inside of you. Let me ask you a question that I've often wondered about, and that is, you know, if I uh, attack an insect, I mean, do they, do they feel the pain? Uh, you know, this has come up for fishermen, you know, in the past couple of years, that, well, fish actually feel pain. When you you know, get them on the end of a line on a hook, uh, they, they're feeling pain. What about bugs? Do they feel pain? 
Well, there was actually some interesting work done some years ago about in, uh, regarding insect pain, and there was some evidence uh, from some physiological work that insects may, in fact, be able to experience what we take to be pain. They're capable of learning in response to what we call negative stimuli, either uh, chemical stimuli or electrical stimuli. You can train an insect, in, in a sense, to respond to shock. And if it wasn't aversive, if it wasn't painful in some way, it doesn't seem like you would be able to generate this associative learning. So it does seem that they can have an experience, we'll just call it a negative experience, something that they don't like. We can call it pain, but it's very difficult to know what that internal experience of the insect is. Well, usually when I'm doing it in an insect, it happens very quickly. So <laughs> I, I, I feel that it's at least merciful. Finally, Jeff... This is something I've always wondered about. I understand how people get interested in chemistry. You know, they want to blow things up. Or astronomy, the stars look somehow, you know, romantic, exotic, and so on. But how does one get interested in entomology, in insects? Oh, well, I actually think that most, many, many children at least, are sort of proto-entomologists. And I think it actually goes back to where we were talking about with the origins of our fears. I think children are highly attuned to insects because of their size, their movement, and their sense of being different or alien or interesting. And that's what captivated me as a child. These things were just so remarkable. It was, then of course, I was growing up in the 60s and we were talking about you know, the space race and the possibility of life on other planets and whatnot. And, and I guess it occurred to me that, you know, we've got pretty darn alien life on this planet. And, and these creatures were just wonderful in terms of what they could do that I couldn't do and trying to get inside of them and, and understand them. It was a deep fascination. And, and so I had this very positive sort of um, enchantment, I think I might call it, with with insects, just in large part because they were so different, but they were still animals like myself, which is why when I uh, had this terrifying encounter in a gully with these creatures that had so long fascinated me, but at that point terrified me, it became something that was very disturbing and catalyzed this long investigation into the nature of fear and our relationships to insects, which gave rise to the book. Jeffrey Lockwood, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Seth. I enjoyed it. Jeffrey Lockwood is professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming. He's the author of The Infested Mind, Why Humans Fear, Loathe, and Love Insects. So maybe all it takes is to put aside our evolutionary tendency to recoil at the sight of insects. We can be rational about all this. Okay, this is my first night with the mealworm, so we'll take off the top here. And, oh, all right, brace myself here. Yes, there are worms in there. Uh, they're about an inch long or so, about three centimeters, that is, and they're wiggling around. It's actually hard to see them because they're the same color as this wheat bran, this sort of light tan color. Uh, some of them are trying to wiggle up the side of the box and so forth. See if I can tell how many legs they have. You know what? I'm just going to say a lot of legs on the bottom of their bodies. Okay. <laughs> I think that'll do it for me for tonight. All right. Good night, mealworms. Who knows? These guys may just bring out the pest of us. It's big picture science. Jeffrey Lockwood makes the point that as we built our cities and became urbanized, insects took advantage of our slovenly ways. 
When filth and waste piled up in cramped close quarters, well, the bugs moved in. High human density, it often means high bug density. And this is especially true in our biggest urban centers. Beginning at the turn of the 20th century when new immigrants and poor families crowded into New York tenements and later into public housing, bugs crowded in as well. The history of bugs in our cities is intertwined with the history of economic disparity. In her book, Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats, Dawn Day Beeler examines the usually unsuccessful battles against urban pests. These creative creatures have adapted to our ever-changing human habits, sticking with us every six-legged step of the way, including the cockroaches that cannily exploit the cracks in our urban edifices. We really have quite weak housing codes and weak requirements for building in the United States compared to some other advanced industrial societies. And so we get these little gaps under the baseboards and we get peeling wallpaper and we get spaces underneath your stove and between the stove and the countertop and cabinet doors that don't quite shut. And all of these things create the ideal habitat for roaches. Roaches have this amazing behavioral characteristic called positive thigmotaxis, which means they love to have their bodies touching something, whether that's another roach or just some surface like the underside of a baseboard. Um, You can see in particularly infested homes rows of cockroaches with their antennae sticking out from underneath those baseboards like a row of eyelashes. Well, what's interesting about that is the cockroach predates humans. I mean, the evolution of the cockroach has been extended over millions of years, and they survived before we ever had modern cities. Do you know how they made the transfer from their their natural environment to modern cities? Well, it's very true that there are many, many species of cockroach, and many of them don't even live in our cities. Um, I can think of, for example, the hissing cockroach, which is a lovely lovely animal that many people keep as a pet. Okay, just to be clear, you said hissing Hissing cockroaches, yeah. They have little um, pores in the sides of of their shells, of their exoskeletons, and they release a little bit of air out of those. And they make a hissing sound, which is one of the ways that they communicate. And those, along with many others, are what you might think of as more wild or non-domestic species of cockroaches. But the ones that are living with us, they've evolved to exploit not only these little cracks and crevices in our homes, but also the kind of food garbage or the food storage uh, facilities that we have as humans. Now, cockroaches are, in some ways, the poster bug for unsanitary conditions. Is that always the case that the conditions are unsanitary? And are they a health risk in themselves? I mean, they certainly make us feel queasy, but can they actually make us sick? Well, if you've got one or two cockroaches, you don't need to worry too much. But if you've got an infestation in the hundreds or the thousands, which certainly happens in some places, those cockroaches, when they they shed their exoskeletons, which they do periodically through their lives, or when they, they die and they decay, all that decaying bodily matter turns into kind of a pulverized dust, and we can breathe that in. And if you're breathing in a lot of that, and especially if you're a small child, you're vulnerable to developing allergies and asthma. And studies starting in the 1990s suggested that a lot of the urban children who have these severe conditions of asthma ending up in the emergency room 
part of what's to blame for that is their constant exposure to these cockroach proteins in their environment. One more thing about cockroaches that you write about, and if anyone is eating right now, I might suggest that you pause, is that not only do they molt their exoskeletons, as you pointed out, and they do so many times, sometimes they eat it. Yes, although I I guess I put a little bit of a positive spin on that because at least they're kind of cleaning up their own garbage. (laughs) Um, Probably not enough to to eliminate every little exoskeleton laying around, but yeah, they're, they're, they're actually fairly clean animals in a lot of ways. Well, let's talk about another pest, um, the bed bug. And you write that the bed bug populations in, in our cities exploded. Actually, that's not a good choice of word, but okay, <laughs> took off at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, why was that? Well, bedbugs had been around for actually quite a long time um, in the United States, and they spread from home to home and city to city. And by the late 19th century, upper-income people started to figure out that they didn't have to live with bedbugs. And the way that they got rid of them was by hiring plenty of staff. And that staff, those staff members, could kind of discreetly deal with that bedbug population wherever it cropped up. So actually, there was one segment of society by the early 20th century that was getting rid of its bedbugs, which then in turn made those people who continued to live with bedbugs look shabby by comparison. Now, it really was quite a difficult slog to get rid of these creatures. So you're saying that for poorer communities, living with the bedbugs became a stigma. It did, definitely. It definitely became a stigma. And people really, really tried to um, to get to rid their homes of these bedbugs. But it, it wasn't altogether uh, their fault if they gave up. Because even if you toiled for weeks, going out every Saturday, taking your mattress outside, scrubbing it with kerosene, which was something that people did, even if you did that, you know, you might at one point, you know, borrow something from a neighbor and maybe that something that you borrowed had a bed bug on it. And that could reintroduce a bed bug infestation to your home and then you're back to square one. And so what's it like to live with bed bugs? It's very stressful. You lose sleep. You start to see bed bugs everywhere, even if they're not there. You become paranoid. There's actually a condition called delusory parasitosis. People who've had bed bugs in the past can have this kind of hangover effect because they've grown so nervous and so stressed out from living with bed bugs that they see them and imagine them and feel them everywhere. I think um, I'm feeling them now. <laughs> getting a little itchy, I suppose. <laughs> Don, let's talk about how, how effectively one can eradicate or at least control pest populations and the role of poisons in that, in pesticides and so forth. Have they been successful or just caused more problems? Well, initially, they looked extremely successful. In the case of bed bugs, by the 1950s or so, very, very few Americans still lived with bed bugs. So they went from this extremely common, almost ubiquitous um, status to, um, I think someone once called them the bug that nobody knows. Uh, they were just they were just gone. And, and by the time the bed bugs came back, which happened in the mid to late 90s. Two generations of people had never really known about bed bugs. Um, so DDT worked great with bed bugs initially. So DD- DDT was employed DDT, in cities? Yes. What people would spray it in their homes? Yes, definitely. So um, 1945 is 
uh, of course, the end of World War II. And after that, some people went out to the store and bought a bottle of ZDT themselves. And DDT was quite inexpensive, so you could just do this yourself. It kind of presented itself as something that an untrained housewife could do. And it often was housewives who were applying it. And by doing that, you would kind of establish this coating of chemical over your house. And if a cockroach or a bed bug touched that coating, um, they would be repelled and perhaps die. So that worked quite well for a few decades, actually. But then aren't there some insects that can develop a tolerance to these pesticides and they come back stronger? Definitely. And that has happened both with the German cockroach and with the, the bed bug itself. So we saw insecticide resistance evolving among mosquitoes and houseflies by the end of the 1940s, so less than five years after DDT was first introduced. And with bed bugs, there are some early cases reported not so long after that, by the 1950s. And with cockroaches, you kind of go from there. You, uh, pest control operators and other professionals who worked with these chemicals noticed that German cockroach populations were not responding to DDT or its um, successor chemicals such as chlordane. So in this way, these, these bugs are evolving with us. Uh, we are trying to eradicate them. Their environment is changing, and they are adapting to their environment, but they're sticking with us. Exactly. Are there any success stories, successful stories of eradicating any of these bugs? Is there just one that comes to mind? Because it seems like they've all persisted. You write about bed bugs, cockroaches, flies. You also talk about rats they're still with us. So is there a success story that comes to mind? Well, I, I think the fly story is somewhat of a success, but it was really an accidental success. And I, I really uh, have to attribute the decline in house flies in our cities to the move from horses, uh, at horse power as a main mode of transportation and power in cities, to the internal combustion engine and cars, which didn't produce this lovely manure which flies would breed in and, and enjoy. It raises the question of whether or not you can ever have a modern city that is pest-free. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think we can. I think they're always with us. But there are things that we can do to reduce their numbers and to make it easier for the people who are most burdened with them. Dawn Day Beeler, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for talking with me, Molly. Dawn Day Beeler is an assistant professor of geography and environmental studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats. Meanwhile, or should I say mealwhile, it's 5.45 a.m. and time for breakfast. Okay, it's early morning, and I'm going to say good morning to my mealworms. Oh my gosh, there are so many more worms now. Okay, you guys, wake up. It's morning. I'm going to give you breakfast. So I have a little carrot here. I'll chop it up. I don't know what mealworm size is. I'm going to stick it in the little mealworm farm here. I don't see any movement right now. Maybe they're sleepy. Okay, I'll let them be. Come back and see how they've done with the carrot.
Here's another reason for bugs to worm their way into your hearts. They may have been instrumental in your penchant for carrying a tune. Musician David Rothenberg has a theory that the buzzing, beating, and twittering of bugs were a natural rhythm section that first inspired humans to create their own music. He's not an evolutionary biologist, and he says this is his own theory, but he bases it on his experience as a musician and the special interest he has in working with animal sounds. Having recorded the music of birds and whales, in which he mixed in the sounds of his own compositions, he now takes his jazz improvisations to the insect world. He calls himself an interspecies musician, and he has recorded with the human species, including Peter Gabriel. But where he seems most in his element is jamming in a field filled with cicadas or katydids. His latest album is also the title of his latest book, Bug Music. David, let's start with a piece of music you've composed that's inspired by the cicada. Let's take a listen to that first. We are listening to Magic Cicada Unexpected Road. Okay, so this is a live performance, live in the field of me and my son and millions of cicadas playing live. I'm playing clarinet, he's playing an iPad, and the millions of cicadas are singing their song, which they only do once every 17 years when they come out of the ground. So let me get this straight, David. You found these cicadas, you knew they were going to swarm, you went there with your son, with the instruments and a recorder, and you, what, stood in the field and improvised your part? Well, cicadas don't really swarm. You know, they, they just come out once every 17 years in, in huge numbers. So when they're out, you cannot miss them. When you stop to listen to them, they're really making this incredible sound. Each individual one's making a sound that goes like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And if you have millions of them, you hear this, this tone that's just like, that kind of resounds through the forest. That's one species. And at the same time, there's another species that's making this kind of swelling noise sound. They're going like, Do you have any idea how they make those various sounds? Uh, you described two of them. And, and, you know, physically, what's happening? I mean, they don't, they don't have vocal cords. How do they make those sounds? Cicadas make sound a very interesting way, very different than other insects. What cicadas do is they, they have a, only the males have this. They have an organ called a um, timbal that's like the head of a drum. It's this little round thing, and they vibrate it by sticking air inside their bodies. It's like they're like vibrating a drum head, like <laughs> vibrating it really, really fast. And this one organ can make this whole range of sounds from this tone to this noisy uh, hiss. The timbals are unique to cicadas and their other insect relatives. David, you've created music uh, inspired by various kinds of insects, obviously the cicadas, but also crickets, mosquitoes, katydids, water bugs. But you've also suggested that bugs are what have given us rhythm uh, in general, even music. What do you base that idea on? I base that idea on just years of listening to their sounds and talking to people in different places, hearing what it sounds on a summer night in a meadow. You know, in the places I grew up in the eastern United States, you hear katydids going, 
You just hear these rhythms, the same things that the first humans were hearing hundreds of thousands of years ago. They were hearing these rhythms made by these little tiny creatures and no doubt human music with its rhythms and noises and scratches and, and, and our actual love of strange sounds and repetition. We developed our own music while hearing the sounds of these insect creatures who have been around on this planet millions of years before our earliest relatives appeared. Well, I've heard other theories uh, such as, you know, the human heartbeat. I don't know, you're in the womb and there's this heartbeat around you even before you have your own, that there are other various biological rhythms that are endemic uh, just to us. But I, I think this is a very interesting idea that it might have been, you know, the insect population that inspired our ancestors to pick up a stick and start our own percussion section. Uh, do you get any support for this from, uh, from others? Those theories are as equally speculative as mine. You know, there's no real evidence that just human heartbeats or the speed of human walking, that that's where our music comes from. It's also a nice idea, but actually our music has always been so diverse. I think we shouldn't deny the rhythms that are out there in nature and have always been there long before um, we started making music. Well, you've mentioned the diversity of, uh, of sounds here. Maybe you can give me some other examples. We've talked a lot about the uh, cicadas here. What, what other sounds can insects make? There are many insects that are making sounds. The most uh, kind of famously beloved of people are the sounds of crickets because they're kind of uh, simple, high, mournful, and, and uh, something like the snowy tree cricket is going and they all kind of find that rhythm together. They kind of synchronize. And tree crickets are very hard to see, but very easy to hear. I already mentioned katydids. Some of the most amazing insect sounds are underwater beetles that, in general, people did not hear until we invented underwater microphones. And, you know, in general, the bigger the animal, the louder a sound it might be able to make. But this one tiny water bug, called, in fact, the lesser water boatman, makes a sound almost as loud as a whale by vibrating its penis underwater at a very fast rate. In the Insect Drummer's piece, we have entirely synthesized sounds based on this one particular experiment. Done by some scientists at Syracuse University where they figured out how to listen to the molecular activity inside the brain of a mosquito. So they're actually listening at a tiny molecular level and sort of ironically their sound sounds a little bit like the way we hear a mosquito, even though they're listening a whole different way. And it's the whole idea of that story that inspired me to make this piece all electronically, combining the electronics with my own bass clarinet that led to this piece. So it's made a whole different way, but I really feel it's influenced by the aesthetics of the insect world. You've also studied the sounds of birds and whales and, and have remarked that focusing on insects now kind of completes a trilogy of music in the animal world. How do the sounds and music of birds and whales compare with that of insects? I mean, there's this obvious difference to me that birds at least can carry a melody. Well, insects can carry rhythm and noise and make them really important. And so much human music is based on rhythm and noise. So in a way, insects are more musical than all the others because of the rhythmic aspect. 
Now, melodies are, of course, important. And birds, I think, of all animals, are the most universally understood as being musical. There's so many bird songs that really sound like human melodies. There's simple ones and complicated ones. The songs of whales have not really been known until 40 or 50 years ago, when again we first started listening underwater. And in particular, the humpback whale has one kind of very, very long, beautiful, involved song, very different than any other animal. So it's kind of uh, unique in itself. So uh, each of them is very different, but I think they're all quite musical in their own way. And I think the more I listen to these different creatures, the more I think that music is something that's much more beyond the limitations of the human world. I'd like to hope that in the near future, all music students, whatever kind of music you, you are studying, you should have to do some time contemplating, playing, and thinking about the music of animals and other species and of nature itself, just to broaden and intensify our musical experience. David Rothenberg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. David Rothenberg is a musician and author of Why Birds Sing, about making music with birds, and Thousand Mile Song, about making music with whales. His latest is Bug Music, How Insects Gave Us Rhythm and Noise. So could you get into uh, insect music, Molly? Well, listening to David Rothenberg makes us realize that we are into insect music in some ways uh, when we hear the crickets outside and the katydids and, and so forth. It's, it's a little repetitive, I find, that the, you know, the bugs don't improvise too much. Most of that was done by David Rothenberg himself, actually. Maybe the jitterbug, but that's pretty repetitive, too, come to think of it. But it does give us a reason to appreciate bugs, perhaps more than we have been. I'll buy the album. We're bringing out the pest of us at Big Picture Science. Last time we checked with a mealworm farm, it was feeding time. Okay, I fed the mealworm some carrot. Let's see how they did with the carrot. Oh my gosh, they are swarming the carrots. Okay, and if I pick this up, all right, oh, yikes. Um, they're clinging to the uh, side of the carrot here, and uh, I guess they're not burrowing in the carrot Oh, um, so much as they are just been eating away at it. So there's a whole handful of worms here, about a half dozen uh, clinging under this carrot. I think I'll just put it right back down. And I have to say, there's not much of the carrot left. These bugs are certainly resourceful, and apparently they're also hungry. In fact, as we've heard, they can, they can boast a lot of redeeming qualities. They have extraordinary adaptive ability, and some of us find their long folded legs and their delicate little wings actually beautiful. Chirping and buzzing, music to some ears, Yes, bugs have been a big part of human history, and they may be a bigger part of our future. Just open a menu. Hmm, I'm having a hard time deciding. The cricket casserole looks good. Beetle bourguignon, that sounds enticing. What do you recommend? The special today is grasshopper chops. I'll have that. Very good. Starter, sir? A bowl of soup, please. Extra flies. 
<laughs> so, bug appetit, everyone. Insects, other bugs, they're packed with protein. And as the world faces declining resources due to climate change and intensive farming, well, bugs may just become a common protein source. Indeed, they already are in the non-Western world. Tiny Farms in Berkeley, California, is a forward-thinking startup. And the goal of the co-founders is to create a company promoting edible insects. They're creating prototype bug kits, such as the one Molly took home. Right, I'm back at Tiny Farms. I left my personal mealworm farm at home. Um, but now I'm going to see where these mealworms are grown in mass. Hello, it looks like I caught you crunching some numbers there. I'm, I'm Molly. Hi, nice to meet you. Uh, my name's Daniel Imri Sitanayake. I'm Jenna Brentano. And hi, Andrew. We met earlier. Yeah, good to see you again. And you all were crunching some numbers here, and you were talking in kilograms and volume. Were you talking about volume of insects or land? land, the amount of space it would take to grow the insects you want to eat. Now the kit that you're all designing is here in your farm and it's actually you know a bit of a, a makeshift uh, farm in this in this garage here. What are these kits? What are they designed for? Yeah so the idea is basically in the next couple of months we're hoping to launch a sort of crowdfunded project to basically start developing an open source insect farm. The, the idea behind what we're doing is basically to try and build some of the tools and technology and processes that will allow insect farming to scale to the point where it actually can feed millions of people. What is it about bugs that hold such promise as a future food source? One of the great things about bugs is the space requirement because each individual bug is very small. They can be grown at just about any scale, whereas a cow requires a minimum of about an acre to grow up. You can grow enough insects for your own dinner in the space under your desk or in a closet. They have comparable amount of protein to a cow or a chicken. How many, how many bugs do you think you have in this garage right now? Just give me a rough number of the number of bugs that are thriving and calling this place home. 200,000 maybe. Okay, 200,000 <laughs> bugs. And you can't actually see any of them and there isn't a smell and it's clean. And most of this garage space is basically just empty space. So it really kind of shows the number of insects you can produce and the amount of protein you can produce in a very small, low-impact way. Okay, let's meet some of these bugs. Um, so these guys are mealworms. Actually, they're larvae of a type of beetle, and they're like a very tiny little worm to begin with, and they'll just eat any kind of like cereal or grain. They'll molt their skin several times and eventually grow to be maybe about an inch long. And at that point, they're ready to harvest. Now, these, these mealworms here are about the size of my mealworms. If I wait much longer, they will go into pupil stage, won't they? Yeah, exactly. So what they'll do is like they'll kind of harden up and shrink down and go into this pupa. A beetle will hatch out, basically. Introduce me to some other insects here. I thought I heard a cricket back there. Did I? Is that one that just jumped in here that's visiting, or is there more than one? We also have a population of crickets in the back here, so <laughs> we'll show you. Okay, you're opening up a little closet for them. Do they like it dark? Is that why it's zipped up? Uh, no, actually. It's just to sort of maintain a more stable temperature. Inside of each one of those buckets? Are some crickets? Mm -hmm. This is the sound of crickets crawling over some paper in a bucket. That's food for someone. Absolutely. Any other insects here? Oh, those are the largest cockroaches I have seen. 
Yeah, these were pretty terrifying when I first got a hold of them. So he's walking all over your hands. That they're a promising candidate for a potential food animal. They feel a little odd because they're so big and we're not used to insects of this size in the West. But in a lot of countries where people do eat insects, um, and that's about 60% of the world's population regularly eat insects, I think. It tends to be in countries which have larger insects natively. How, how would you eat this cockroach? Would you eat it raw or would you cook it in something? What would you do? I mean, I've personally eaten these guys and what I did was fry them up, basically slice them up and fry them. And it looks a lot like shrimp or something like that. Um, well, do you, do you slice them up while they're still alive? Oh, no, no. I mean, the, the things I remember with all of these is that like living creatures... So, I mean, what, what we tend to do, it's pretty much what people have arrived at as being a fair way to do it, is to basically put them into the freezer, like in a bag or a container of some kind, and just let them slowly kind of shut down and then freeze. Well, how much protein can you get from a cockroach or a mealworm? If we were to do this, I don't know, some, a comparison, how many cockroaches, how many bags of mealworms would you need, say, to equal a four-ounce steak in protein? You would have uh, basically the same amount of protein by weight as your steak. So if you wanted four ounces of steak, you'd get an equivalent four ounces of mealworms. As far as a count goes for the mealworms at the size you'd harvest them, you've got maybe one or 2,000 to a pound. And so you'd be looking at, you know, maybe 500 mealworms in your serving. The, the mealworms, if you toast them up, kind of taste like a sunflower seed. They don't taste like chicken. No, uh, the cockroaches do. Okay, so you could fry up these mealworms and these bugs. Could you eat them raw? We would not recommend it. Like any meat product or any living animal, they can have parasites or bacteria. We feed them organic produce and organic wheat bran. Like anything, it should be cooked to a, you know, internal 165 to be food safe. Okay, and do you have any tips for how I take my little thermometer and stick it through one of those mealworms and make sure it's at 165? When they're crispy, they've gotten there. Okay. So we don't need tiny thermometers. No, I don't think so. Everything we've been talking about here and the examples of these of these insects in these different containers that you have would be enough for maybe one person to grow them at home. But if you're talking about a family or a community or really making this a, a substantive food source or even a staple, what are the plans for scaling up something like this? Um, so there are already large-scale insect farms sort of all across the world. And um, in some countries, they're grown for pet feed, like in the U.S. And then in other countries, there's a fairly developed sort of food insects like ecosystem. I guess a good milestone in our open bug farm project will be when we've got a couple of people who are actually sort of contributing part of their nutritional intake from the insects that they're growing. Right now, there are a few people in the U.S. doing that with bugs they've grown, but it's not a huge number. But it's going to be cool to see. Okay, well, thank you very much. Cool, thank you. Great meeting you. Thank you. Enjoy your worms. Daniel Imri Satuniaka, Andrew Brentano, and Jenna Brentano are co-founders of Tiny Farms in Berkeley, California. Well, there's one more chapter to Molly's bug odyssey, and it does feel kind of odd. I'm taking the uh, mealworms out of the freezer where I put them last night. So I'm shaking the mealworms out onto a flat pan. Now there's a little plate here of frozen mealworms. Turn on the burner. Put a little oil in this pan. 
All right, a little bit of salt. Okay, they're curling in the pan as they fry. No idea how long to fry them for. Oh, they're popping. Wait, wait. Put the lid on it. Keep them from popping out of the pan. They look like they're alive, or they did when I first put them in the pan. They started to move around and curl up. I think it was just the reaction to the temperature difference. Wow, Molly, it sounds like you were making up a batch of popcorn, except except it wasn't popcorn. No, I had to put the lid on because the mealworms, they were popping out of the pan. Some of them landed on the floor. Yeah, well, that's only the first stage, perhaps, of a test of your intestinal fortitude. Well, there may be a test of all of ours because the natural thing, now I don't know how natural this is, but the logical conclusion of all of this is at least one of us should try a fried mealworm. So, Seth and Gary, are are you up for this? Well, I guess we have to be. Oh, yeah, totally into it. Okay, I'm just going to put a few of these fried mealworms on a, on a plate for each of you. It almost smells like seafood, which makes them a little less horrific. Not for me. Well, they should smell like burned mealworms because I think that's what they well, are. Well, that's what they are, but all right. if okay, I pretend listen. they're shrimp. Okay, so dig in. You do not have to eat them all. Here we go. One... Two, three. Oh. Hmm. That's not bad. No. It tastes like a a burned sunflower seed. Yeah. That's not too bad at all. No, I might eat them all. Not what I expected. Yeah. I might open a new restaurant. (laughs) There is a psychological factor, though, looking down at them. I think it's better just to look up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, not bad. Not at all. And, you know... I feel a little less queasy about this future we've been uh, talking about during the show. You didn't meet the cockroaches. No, I ha- no, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. But th- the fact that bugs have had a long history with us, mostly an antagonistic one, it uh, may be nice to know your enemy a little differently. <laughs> Our production team brings out the best in us, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And by the way, there are photos of the mealworms cooked and uncooked and also a short cockroach video from Tiny Farms. It's all on our blog at bigpicturescience.org. And we'd like to acknowledge support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Gary, how are you doing? You've been pretty quiet since you swallowed that last... Oh, no, I can't wait to eat the rest of these. Is that true? Yeah, I'm just waiting for you guys to finish. (laughs) Your ears have been attuned to the pest of us. Sorry to bug you, but there's more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you're less likely to bug others with your portable device, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. 